When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to She and Her on WHUPLP Hillsboro. Uh, we are thrilled. I start every show by saying we're thrilled, but we're often thrilled. We are we, often thrilled. I mean, we make this commute over here for y'all, <laughs> the listeners. So yes, we are thrilled to talk to you. Thrilled again. to talk to you again and be in the studio. Um, and I guess we should just say, so as you all may have noticed this season, we have been really focusing on talking with women in our community who are doing interesting creative work, who are funny and hilarious, who inspire us, um, who are engaging us in some way. And so it's been really fun to bring people into the studio and sit down in person. Um, So we hope you've enjoyed those episodes. And today we have another one for you. Uh, We are really happy to welcome Catherine Goldstein into our studio. She is a journalist and a newly minted podcaster who is also trying to elevate women's voices. She just launched The Double Shift, which is a podcast about a new generation of working mothers. And she is a mother herself. She's interested in focusing in on the stories of mothers from all walks of life, who work as touring musicians, who work in legal brothels and in politics. Um, And we are thrilled to welcome her to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So... Your show is called The Double Shift, and you're very intentional right from the very start of the very first episode that this is not a podcast about parenting and not a podcast about kids. Talk to us about choosing that tagline and being so um, kind of front and center about that as part of your message. Yeah, so as I've been developing The Double Shift over the course of the last year, year and a half, um, what was really clear to me is that as a society, we think that if we're talking about anything related to motherhood, it has to be about parenting or kids, like that there's no other way to talk about the experience of being a mother or being a working mother um, without just filtering it through the lens of tips and tricks or parenting strategies or um, sort of, you know, thinking about your life as it relates to kids. But I'm actually not interested in any of that as from a journalistic perspective. That's great. And there's plenty of people who create all sorts of interesting content and do journalism around that. But I'm actually interested in the experience and identity of working mothers and how that intersects with health care and 
public policy and discrimination and economics. So I, it's a very, very rich topic that gets really pigeonholed into parenting. So that's why I'm out of the gate saying, guess what? This is a show that's not about parenting. Well, tell us a little bit about your background as a journalist and how you arrived at this this particular subject? So I um, have been a journalist for about 12 years, and a lot of that was in audience development and um, newsroom management and strategy. So I wasn't, from a lot of my career, I wasn't focused on creating content myself. And um, I was a very sort of hard-charging New York City professional, and really great things were happening in my career, and I was kind of like an all-in on lean-in kind of person. And then my experience in the work world and life like got really challenging after my son was born. So he was born with some pretty serious health problems, and he's actually doing great now, but you know, my time as a new mom was very stressful. And then I lost my job when he turned six months old. So the first year of his life was like really, really challenging to all aspects of myself and my identity. And during those times, like I really felt like a failure. But then as I started to look into some of what mothers face um, in our society, like I started to realize everybody felt like a failure and that none of us were failures and that it was really society that is failing us. And so I really was interested in sort of looking at that and researching that journalistically rather than just sort of making it about personal responsibility or personal things you can change. So how is society failing mothers? Oh, good. How many hours do we have? (laughs) Begin now. Is this a monologue or like (laughs) top 10 list? Like give me like... Let's go with top 10. Okay, top 10 list. Okay. Countdown. Like I would love to do like be like one of those late night hosts. We like the number eight way. Society fails mothers. That would be so fun. Okay. Um, Well, so... I think that one of the things that's really important in talking about um, motherhood is talking about the huge economic impact that motherhood has on women and families. So a lot of times, you know, you hear a lot about the pay gap and why aren't women reaching the highest levels of, you know, all the professions? Why aren't there more women CEOs? Why aren't there more women on corporate boards? Why aren't there more women in this field or that field? And people act like it's this like crazy mystery, like how could we ever solve this problem? It's just so unknowable. But really, when you start to look at the data, basically pay gap and all of those reasons for why women aren't reaching the top of professions is because of motherhood. So if you have a baby between the ages of 25 and 35, which in case you didn't know are your prime childbearing years, you're earning. Good to know. Yeah, Thanks. just just <laughs> FYI, FYI, um, pr- yes, prime doesn't. You know, there's other <laughs> there's other windows, but those are like prime time. That's like the prime time slots. Um, if you have a baby during those times, your earnings never recover, and that's not true for dads. And you know, we're seeing more and more journalism and reporting that pregnancy discrimination is rampant in American workplaces. Mm. And I believe that. Yeah, there's a lot of other issues that moms face in terms of anti-mom bias and sort of being pushed out of jobs and not really being allowed to be supported to their full potential. And there's a lot of that has to do with the fact that workplaces, a lot of workplaces are basically still set up for the idea of like an ideal worker who's like a 1950s dude who has no caretaking responsibilities. And like, that's how American workplaces still think about things. And that's not 
that doesn't really fit our current economy. It doesn't fit for people who have caretaking responsibilities. And there's just so much we need to change. So I think that mothers face economic and social marginalization and are told that, like, the things that are hard are their fault. And, you know, we're, of course, the only country, industrialized country with no paid family leave. 25% of mothers go back to work within two weeks of giving birth in this country, which is just crazy. I was talking to somebody the other day who's thinking she's going to have to go back after three weeks. Yeah. I mean, from a physical, emotional, psychological, mental health, baby's health, that's just so unconscionable. And in 13 states in this country, there are laws that prohibit dogs from being separated from their puppies before eight weeks. I saw that. (laughs) So literally, we have better laws in this country for dogs than we do for mothers. So those are just those are those are, that's just a smorgasbord of my top ten list. Okay, but the show is also about sort of the internal narrative and self perception mothers have of themselves. So can you talk about how that showed up for you as you became a mother and why that is part of what you're trying to accomplish here? So I think so part of the double shift, like one of the ways we describe this show is challenging how society sees moms and how we see ourselves. So um, I think I'm really interested in consciousness raising among mothers as an agent for social change. So um, one of the ways I think about this is that we're really comfortable with moms talking about feeling guilty all the time. Like, if you're on mom Instagram or you're on, um, you know, mom social media or talking to mom friends saying, oh, I, f- I just feel so guilty because X is it something you're going to hear all the time. And we're just we're fine with that. It's just totally cool for moms to go through life feeling guilty, all guilty the time. all the time. I'm much more interested in seeing moms getting angry because I think there's a lot to be angry about in terms of how we're treated in the workplace and how we're treated in society and in public policy. I think, first of all, if moms start getting angry, people are going to get really freaked out. And, and that's going to be amazing. <laughs> I know I do. <laughs> we're not comfortable with the ideas of moms getting angry, but anger motivates people to stand up for themselves at work. It motivates them to lobby for better policies at their companies. It motivates them to run for office. It motivates them to try to get different laws. Um, it motivates them to stand up for other pe- other mothers. And like, Mothers stand up a lot for, you know, we, we're seeing it in all sorts of activism like Black Lives Matter or teacher walkouts, but we don't see moms getting mad on behalf of themselves. So, like, I'm well, very... because people don't like that. I know. People aren't a culture to be that way or to receive that. Yeah. Right. And I also love what you wrote and articulated about what anger does to us versus what guilt does to us. Guilt silence us. We may have camaraderie in sharing our mom guilt with another person, but it doesn't create any kind of change. No, no. And I think anger, um, actually, I in some research I did for an article for The Guardian, they operate in different parts of the brain. So like if you're angry, it's a different part of the uh, the frontal cortex where it makes you want to go towards challenges. Hmm. And so I just find that super interesting and inspiring to think that if people start getting angry is when we're going to start seeing much more organization and people standing up for themselves. Okay, so tell us about some of the women you featured on the show so far. What about their stories have made you angry and further motivated to do this? Um, so one of our uh, episodes, our second episode called The Night Shift in Sin City is about a woman who runs a 24-hour daycare in Las Vegas. 
And her daycare is a large daycare. It takes care of 108 kids. And they are really there aimed at people. It's a lot of single mothers who go there, a lot of people who go to school all day and um, work at night. Work at night in the casinos as waitresses. Um, some of them are nurses. And, you know, right now there is more political discussion around childcare, which is really exciting. That's finally like maybe that's going to be a topic in the 2020 presidential um, campaigns. And that's really great. But for a long time, the conversation around childcare is like, wow, it really sucks. That's expensive. And there's just like not a lot of other discussion. And I think the people who've really been left out of discussion are shift workers who don't make a lot of money, who need other kinds of thinking about childcare. And so I feel like learning about their stories and what this woman who runs this daycare does is really inspiring to me. But it also makes me angry that like so much of what we hear about childcare is from a privileged and middle class perspective. And it's not to say that those challenges aren't real, but I'm motivated through anger to try to tell other kinds of stories. I was so struck by that episode. And one of the stories told in it is about this young or this woman who I think works at the daycare who says, yeah, my mom was a shift worker. And she was cleaning, and so I would just sit under the sink because until two or three until in the two morning. or three in the morning, she yeah. had nowhere to take me. Yeah, and so I think so. We've talked about kind of workplaces and how they're designed for the 1950s man, and that makes me think about kind of who should our anger be directed toward, and how do kind of men fit into the picture? Because I I do feel like you know our generation, at least from our parents' perspective, may look like oh these relationships are. So much more equitable, you know, men and women on paper seem to share more of the parenting duties. I guess, how do men and fathers fit into the picture? And how are you exploring that part of the story? Yeah, I think men and fathers have a really important role to play in this discussion. I don't think this is just a conversation only for mothers or women. Um, It's definitely true that this generation of fathers is the most involved generation in the history of America or probably the world in terms of parenting responsibilities and involvement. And that, in some ways, is shifting things a lot. But at the same time, even though I think our ideals that I think there's a lot of couples who go into parenthood thinking, you know, this is a 50-50 deal. The man, the if, if it's a straight couple, the the man is thinking like I'm I'm in it to win it. Like I'm not just gonna show up on Sundays and take the kid to a soccer game. Like I'm I'm really in this. But what the data shows and the research shows is that even when both parents work full time, the mother is still doing more of the household and childcare responsibilities. So, our ideals and our um, and the actions have not yet fully lined up. And I think it's really important for, I think men can be very, very, very powerful um, advocates for working mothers in the workplace. Yes. So this is a huge deal. When men are in positions of power and are able to um, be transparent about their parenting responsibilities and say, like, hey, I'm leaving early because my kid's sick or, you know, um, you know, daycare is out today. I'm working from home. That actually can really have a positive impact on a whole workplace culture because men often have more power and they're not judged nearly as harshly as mothers are for the same thing. So men um, being open about their parenting responsibilities at work and creating a culture around that when they're in positions of power is hugely important and helpful to working mothers. How have you... Wait, but who (laughs) were we supposed to be angry at? (laughs) (laughs) There was a complicated question. I know. I want to hit hit that mark. Okay. Um, I think... There are reasons to be angry at so many people. So, but <laughs> oh, no, but so right. many so many situations. So, 
First of all, I believe that change in the workplace and change in the larger world begins at home. And when people are not in equal partnerships, I would like to hereby grant any listener to be angry about that uh-huh. and express that anger yes. in a productive way because rather than just swallowing it or being passive aggressive or just feeling guilty like, oh, I, I forgot XYZ for my kid, but it's because you have 25 things that you have to remember and the way your family's set up, you you are not getting help with that. So... Um, It's totally great and acceptable to be angry at your partner and your family structure (laughs) and to to demand change. Um, And I think a lot of women don't feel empowered to do that for whatever reason. And a lot of women also want things done a certain way and don't want to give up that power. So there's these are complicated topics. These are complicated topics. That's like a whole other issue. Uh, And then I think there's a lot of reasons to be angry at workplaces. So I think, you know, right now in our country, even the most bare bones adequate family leave is seen as like an amazing perk. (laughs) And like, that is not acceptable. And in my reporting, I have found that companies very rarely just like wake up one day and have this epiphany that I think we need to have comprehensive, gender-neutral, paid family leave that's going to be supportive of mothers and fathers and same-sex couples and adoptive parents and um, really, like, revolutionize how we think about family in the workplace. They rarely wake up. Right. (laughs) That 60-year-old HR guy rarely just comes to that on his own. Um, You're right. People have to demand that. There has to be a chorus of voices demanding that. Totally. And the reporting that I've done the most effective ways that I've seen that done is usually groups of women getting together at companies and basically demanding better policies. And I've seen But it like you said, the men need to get involved with that totally. as well. Although in my reporting, and I'm happy if someone, if someone, please email me to tell me that this is not the case. In my reporting so far, it's always been women who have done this. You know, right, unfortunately, the conversation right now around paid family leave in America is like, you should be lucky for what you have. And I think, like, a lot of anxiety for mothers and guilt for mothers starts with that moment of being basically for economic reasons or feeling like there's some kind of job pressure or that you could lose your job, um, having to go back to work before you're ready. And, like, we are biologically programmed to not want to be separated from our newborns. Like, that is a biological urge. And... It is emotionally extremely difficult for people, especially when they're at, at any stage, but especially at this very, very delicate newborn stage. And unfortunately, because paid family leave is so messed up in this country, a lot of times women end up taking a lot more than a male partner. And so that sets up these precedents of imbalance in the home that can last the kid's entire life. They've done research on this. Like, if the dad takes more family leave when the kid is born, they're much more likely to be involved in all kinds of parenting things later in life because they learn how to do it. (laughs) Yeah. If they always feel like they don't know what they're doing, there's going to be a constant, like, sort of helplessness that's never going to improve. Well, talk about setting up a a partnership structure in the home that can actually maybe shift some of these things at the beginning. Because I think there's this conversation that even non-mothers, women who are not mothers can relate to, which is this idea of a mental checklist, which is that 
women are kind of socialized to be the upkeepers of all of these various arenas of your life. So you're thinking about, you know, when do we need to clean the house? When do we need to pay the bills? Oh, this guy's coming this day. Oh, this blah, blah, blah. And my partner and I have talked about this a million times where it's like, I don't like I can't stop myself from having that checklist. But mm-hmm. the fact that I have this checklist takes sucks so much creative energy mm-hmm. out of my life and sucks so much bandwidth. And I took a women in creativity class in college and we talked explicitly about like how this like hinders women's creative potential, especially in the parenting realm. Even if it looks on surface like both parents are doing equal work, the mom is thinking, when is the permission slip due? Oh, mm-hmm. you you have a friend's birthday party. We need to get a blah, blah, blah. How do you make those kinds of shifts in a parenting dynamic? So this is a great question. Maybe I should just talk about my own experience. Yeah, great. (laughs) So um, I think in order to truly make these shifts and give up some of these mental checklists things for, for women in straight relationships, I think you have to be okay, one, giving up some control, and two, people judging you for what you're not doing. Hmm. So the examples I would give are, as I was getting ready to launch this podcast, like my work life was feeling so, so stressed. And my husband is incredible at supporting me at this podcast. And basically our whole family has been revolved around how we need to support the podcast, which is incredible. But so like holidays were coming up and I was just like, I can't be in charge of gifts for our family this year. I can't do it. So... It's just going to be your thing. And he's like, okay. So did he do the gifts <laughs> the exact way I would have done the gifts? No, he didn't. Did he go to get the gifts one hour before the store closed before we left for vacation? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Maybe he did. <laughs> were there just generally appropriate gifts for people to open? Yes, there were. Did our parents judge us for not giving them great gifts? Or I don't know, maybe they were great gifts. I mean, did <laughs> they, I mean, I think they were they were perfectly good gifts. But was there a chance that our parents thought those gifts weren't amazing and that maybe someone like me should have sure. spent more time on them? Maybe. <laughs> or maybe not. And I'm just like okay with that. And another gift one is so my son is three and a half, and so, like, kids' birthday parties, their thing, and we're getting invited to birthday parties, and also, let me just tell you, 90% of the time, if you go to a kid's birthday party, it's the mother who has organized that gift for the kid, and I've just been like, I don't have the bandwidth for this. There's just too much going on. You have to order in advance and wrap it, and so, like, sometimes we bring a gift, sometimes we don't, and, like, Travis is like, I just don't think it matters if we bring a gift, and I'm like, you take the kid to the birthday party without a gift, and I'm just like... Whatever. Are the are the moms at the birthday party being like they didn't bring a gift? Maybe. But I'm just like So how have you gone <laughs> through the process of letting that go? Because it is like I mean, hearing you tell that story, Sandra and I you are laughing yeah. and like cringing, so we're like, Oh my god, one hour before you leave and you don't have anything? Like at that point I would just be like, I'm getting in the car, god damn it. Like right, right. this is the anxiety of this not being done. Right. I'm still thinking about it. Like, it's still occupying a lot of space. Yeah. So does it do you – are you actually able to shut it out? I mean, I think it depends, like um, – it probably depends a lot on your – I mean, part of it, if you delegate, then I think that you do have to practice, like, non-attachment to the outcome. <laughs> and so yeah. this is also about, like, women changing how – this isn't just, like, come on, men, step up. Like, th- that's not just what this is about. Yeah. Um, 
you have if you delegate you have to be willing to accept the outcome and accept things as not being done and also not swoop in and yes. fix it at the last minute yeah and so um I think, like, because of the relationship I have with my husband, I feel assured that he's going to get it done. Like, it may be that he's going to get it done at the very last second or, like, be on a crazy, like, kamikaze (laughs) mission to, like, do something to get it all done. Everything may not always be done exactly as I would do it, but I do feel confident it's going to get done. But also part of it is, like, he doesn't want to be micromanaged and he doesn't want me to swoop in. So I think there's also that element, too. So he's in charge of our taxes this year. So, <laughs> but you know how it goes. <laughs> so he's what does do it a great job. mean to be – you talk a lot about this idea of like to be a mother and the way that society is kind of telling us mothers should be right now is only really accessible to really wealthy women. What does it mean to be a good enough mother for you? And how do you feel mm-hmm. like that is maybe different from what – the societal rules may say i mean i think i feel like i'm a weird test case because i literally spend all my time thinking about how these expectations are total bs so it's like very easy for me to reject them easier for me to reject them but i don't frame things as like good even like good enough like my mm-hmm. kid is like well fed and taken care of and goes to a lovely school and has lots of grandparents that love him and gets to go outside like he is like that's like better than 98% of children in the world. So like that other 2% about was that the most effective use of, you know, language to encourage him to express his feelings or whatever. I don't like whatever, Mm -hmm. like literally whatever. (laughs) Like I think I'm just like, I think also I'm very engaged in my work and that makes me way less obsessive about my kid because I just like I'm like I have bigger fish to fry legit like I just feel like there's more, enough going on in my mind that I just don't it's not that like my work is more important than my kid but it's like that mental energy about like okay yeah like his like pants were kind of dirty when he went to school like right who cares? Right. Who cares? Who's that about? Really? Yeah. Like, like, where's that that like, concern coming from? Yeah, it just doesn't matter. Like, not, in the big picture, yes, it does exactly. not matter. And it's not to say that, like, none of the details of parenting make any difference. But I just think that parenting expectations are just becoming increasingly outrageous, increasingly expensive. And they're not – it's not fun. It's not fun to spend your whole weekend going to kids' activities. That's not how I want to spend my mm-hmm. weekend. That's why my kid's not signed up for anything. It's like you don't have to like shoots and ladder to that default immediately. No, Mm -hmm. totally. And it's like, okay, we're going to sign him up for swim lessons. Seems like he should learn how to swim. Like, that's like, like, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Right. I just think. But does he need to be in dance and piano and Chinese lessons? Exactly. (laughs) And saying that that's not how I want to spend my weekend is like heresy in this culture. Mm -hmm. Saying like, you know what? I like, let's go on a hike. Let you can play while I read the paper. Mm-hmm. Like that is considered like unacceptably selfish. And like I just want to like push on that every chance I get. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. So I'd love to hear, why don't you talk a little bit about some of your favorite episodes and what people can expect? Because I think what I've noticed as after listening to all your episodes now is you're pulling really different kind of women because these types of expectations show up to women across class. Yeah. And the way that those manifest are differently ba- are different based on class. So why don't you tell us a little bit about sure who who you're talking to? Yeah. So the double shift is very committed to telling very diverse stories. Um, we report and we are doing real journalism, and I we're trying to really get at complicated issues through storytelling. So as we're talking about parenting expectations and expectations we have on pregnant people or mothers. Um, A really uh, great example of this is in our first episode with Louisa Rachel Solomon, who is and was a front woman for an indie punk band, and she toured while she was in her third trimester. And the sort of expectations and reactions that she got about the idea of being a punk musician while very pregnant, it really speaks to how we want to like what we think is acceptable for pregnant people and what what's okay for us to tell grown adult women is okay for them to do. And w- their ability to make rational choices about their own lives and bodies really comes out when you're pregnant. Um, so I think like she had such an interesting story and her story is really also about how you find creativity and fulfillment after having a kid and money is an object. Those two things do not come up very much when we talk about motherhood. It's like, how do you find fulfillment and how do you make a living? And like what the intersection of those two things are is very complicated. And she's thinking about it in a really interesting way. So I felt like her story was really um, spoke to a lot of these larger issues just through a, a personal story. Can you talk about the water slide example that she says? Because that I kept coming back to that, and it felt like such a metaphor for so many things that are happening in the series to me. Yeah. So we open the whole series with um, Louisa Rachel Solomon talking about how there's nothing she loves more than when she's on tour with her band, finding a hotel with a water slide <laughs> and getting the whole band together to go on water slide, slide runs. Like this is like one of the things she lives for on tour and she's been touring for 10 years. And so she was at a some, you know, not fancy hotel with her bandmates and she gets up while she's eight months pregnant to go on her water slide run. And there's a bunch of men at the pool who she doesn't know who tries to convince her bandmates that they have to physically stop her from going down the water slide. And they're like, her bandmates were just like, 
she wants to go down the water slide, she's going to go down the water slide. We're not going to stop her. And they, like, these men were very, like, concerned and affronted by this action of her going down the water slide. And, you know, one of the things she said about it was, like, I'm much more concerned uh, about being depressed than I am about what happens to a fetus if I go down a water slide. Wow. And, like, again, this is, like, heresy in our culture because the actual experience of the mother should always be secondary. And prenatal and postpartum depression are very, very real. They have very serious health consequences. So the idea that you would do something that would carry any amount of risk is, like, seen as, like, crazy, even if it is really good for your mental health. By the way, the number one most dangerous thing a pregnant woman can do is get into a car, but we don't see people (laughs) stopping women from doing that. Here's my question. So we're talking about how the patriarchy shows up and how we police women and their choices, basically, and also their bodies. And yet we also have a huge part of our culture. It's all about family. It's all about protecting life, et cetera. And my question for you, how do you grapple with the big conservative movement around being family friendly and yet the total discrepancy between how it shows up in our workplace and like our family leave policies and that how do you square those right well i don't think like um i don't think like a conservative view on family friendliness has anything to do with promoting or protecting the interests of women Like, women as a a vessel to give birth is one thing, but there's nothing in, like, conservative political um, sort of ideology that really promotes public policies around that. So, like, I think I would have a different view if people from a political persuasion who are pro-life were also, like, really into paid family leave, comprehensive daycare, Head Start, you know, WIC nutrition programs, and great prenatal care. Like, that to me is part of, like, a whole... And why aren't we culturally there? Oh, well, I think we're definitely getting there in terms of childcare and paid family leave are coming up. And I think they're going to come up more in this current presidential debate. And we are seeing more states pass legislation like New York has a really good policy that's in effect now. California has a policy like we are seeing some movement. Um, I mean, I think like actually paid family leave and some of these initiatives actually have large bipartisan support um, and Republicans have also sponsored some of these things but I think like we're just I mean that I think speaks more to like political gridlock than like political will but I do think like I think a lot of times one unfortunate thing about some of these early childhood things and paid family leave is the people who are most effective have the least resources to advocate for themselves they're so exhausted they have so much on their plate and by the time they're out of it they're not advocating for the people that come behind them. So I think that that's a big part of, like, why we haven't seen enough political movement on that. And I think that's starting to change, especially with more women and mother and mothers with young kids running for office, which is a great segue yes. into episode three. <laughs> yes. Tell us a little bit about episode three and what struck you, and then we'll take a shift. Okay. Um, so episode three uh, is called The Candidate Who Carpools, and it is about Ashton Clemens, who lives in Greensboro, North Carolina, and she decided to run for the North Carolina State House as the mom of a seven-year-old and twin four-year-olds. And she'd been a very successful super vice superintendent um, in her area and was like doing great in her career, and she was recruited to run as part of efforts to get more women running for office in North Carolina. And she really was so candid and really like let it all hang out in terms of what it was like. Like we 
went were, spent time with her kids. Her daughter got left at ballet while we were doing the interview. <laughs> and it was just very real. And I think a, a really amazing story about people who are really trying to achieve and are doing it in a way that still includes their family. And also, again, like they're not like super wealthy. It's not like no knocking like Kristen Gillibrand, but like she can afford like whatever childcare help she needs. So like people running for like to be a delegate from Greensboro are not necessarily in that same position. Yeah. Well, I think what your show is kind of demonstrating to me is that there are a variety of women who are trying to kind of rewrite the narratives of motherhood, yet we also see them coming up against these systemic forces that make them kind of have to make these pivots. And it makes me think about the profession of journalism, which I work in, and you were asking us before the show, and we're kind of going to talk a little bit about how Sandra and I view our potential motherhood. And I think it's a question that I've thought a lot about. Like, can I be a successful journalist and a mother, especially as someone who really likes the structure of the workplace and the idea of freelancing just, like, really does not appeal to me? I have not seen many women um, really successfully thrive in their journalistic careers in environments that I've been a part of. Um, some have, but it's like it's never – it's because they have – their partner is super flexible. Right. So the idea of being a journalist and also having a partner who doesn't necessarily freelance or work from home or have the super you know, flexible work-life situation – it seems like I don't know how it would work. Yeah. I mean, I think that I hear a lot about women who don't have kids and are considering having kids that just sort of look at the landscape and are like, I, how does this happen? And I think that that's a really good question. And honestly, it's a reason that I think more people are having kids later and people are having less kids and more people aren't having kids at all. Yeah. Um, and I think like what you're describing, I think is really common and really sad, which is that in 2019, as a 30-year-old woman, like you don't see great role models in your workplace for how to have successfully continue to thrive professionally and have a family. And like that is a humongous problem for our culture. And probably someone who had your job 20 years ago had the same experience and someone who had your job 30 years ago had the same experience. And because we aren't proactively changing workplaces enough and the culture is not catching up fast enough, like we're everyone's continuing to reinvent the wheel. Like I talked to so many women who are saying, like, I was the first one in my whole office to have a kid and it was really tough. Or I was the first one, you know, there was it wasn't even a family leave policy like we we as a culture. And I think like what I think is great about being on this show and talking to women who don't have kids is like. Too often we see this as like people don't realize this is a problem until they're in in the thick of it mm-hmm. and until they are being pushed out of jobs or they are faced with terrible family leave policies or they are just not able to continue to thrive professionally. And at that place, they're not in a position of power to negotiate. So people who are in positions of power and like how to be allies and advocates for those to change workplaces before you have kids, if you know, really try to think about. Not just like, oh, we need to make a special accommodation for this mom, but how can this whole workplace work better for everyone? Like that that work is on people without kids, too. And what does it look like? We have a working mom in our office right now who I manage. And even, you know, when I've 
we've been flexible about her schedule and she comes in late and we call her for the meeting, she's like, I don't feel like people understand why I'm always late or like that I always leave early. And I feel like there's this kind of underlying cultural thing of even though you know and you're my boss and it's approved, right. like culturally it still looks like yes. I'm doing treatment. less and it's yeah. special treatment. And yes. I think that's like a whole other pocket. Oh, yes. So I think that unfortunately for working moms, a lot of times people view, quote, accommodations as special treatment and that that moms aren't pulling their weight. So the studies actually show that moms, working moms are actually more efficient than average workers, but they don't necessarily... Um, they're not necessarily the ones that are hanging out till seven, like chatting yeah. and like, you know, finishing up after they like were gossiping and posting on Facebook for an hour. Like so they but they actually in terms of efficiency are more efficient than other kinds of workers. So but the it, the way we view it is because workplaces are so inflexible, then, oh, you're getting special treatment because you get to leave at five and we have to stay at six till six like why do you have to stay till six what it what work can be done in different ways and remotely so it's about supporting people at all stages of life and all kinds of flexibility not like working mom you get special treatment because that actually hurts moms in the long run because they're seen as not pulling their weight they're seen as not contributing or they're seen as like getting something that other people don't get which breeds resentment so it's a very so workplaces need to be changed for everyone, not just for working mothers. So when my office has, one of my colleagues is having a baby and apparently it's been the first, it's the first baby in a long time. And I immediately sort of projected all of my concerns if I ever pictured myself pregnant at this office onto her. And I went immediately to the person who does a lot of our HR stuff and I was like, what's the policy here? Because we need to start thinking about how to make this a better place for her. That just to me demonstrated how much I've thought about how hard it would be to do my job the way I do my my job, given the way it's set up if I were a mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like having people wanting those policies looked at and like asking those questions who aren't parents and who aren't pregnant is really important because it shows like that there's concern willingness. and willingness and, you know, interest in making those policies better. And like Places that have flexibility and comprehensive paid family leave policies, like, can thrive as diverse workplaces. What do you consider a comprehensive family leave? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I would say, um, so right now in America, like, a lot of people consider, like, 12 weeks because that's what FMLA has, has stated. Like, that's, like, a good amount of time. That is not a, an adequate amount of time. There's no medical. That's not based on any medical research. That's like literally some random person in 1982 decided 12 weeks. Like <laughs> 12 is a nice number. Yeah, basically yeah. seems okay. So the research in terms of like coming out of Europe and other places show that four to six months is a good um, time off because actually after you get past six months, there can be negative career repercussions in terms of taking so much time off that it's hard to get back into um, work life. So four to six months, I think, um, is sort of now in the research seen as more like really where we should be headed. Paid, of course. Right. <laughs> so you don't have the economic stress. But also thinking about different ways that it can be gender neutral yes. is really important, too. So if you have like six months off for um, 
women who give birth and two weeks off for men, you're going to create hierarchies and favoring in terms of who you're hiring and promoting because there's no way that the man is ever going to take off as much time. If you create more neutral policies and men actually take it, that's another huge part that men need to take their full paternity leave. That's the most feminist thing that any man can ever do is to take the maximum amount of paternity leave they're offered. Then it, it, it creates more balance. So it's not like, guy who's 31, woman who's 31, well, the guy's never going to have to take any time off. He must be a better candidate. So... Well, we're out of time. Whoa, yes, guys. that was so fast. So you have been listening to Catherine Goldstein, the creator and host of the podcast, The Double Shift, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. But where else can people find you and track the show? Sure. So um, you can sign up for our newsletter at thedoubleshift.com. And we're on Instagram at The Double Shift. And it is a fast-growing hotbed of conversation <laughs> around feminism and motherhood. It's very different than other parts of mom Instagram. So yes. come join us there. Um, and you, yeah, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wonderful. Check it out. We will um, share all of that in the info in this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. And y'all can find us at She and Her Radio on Facebook and Instagram and also wherever you get your podcasts. Y'all take care. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.